you have your Bible this morning, turn to the book of Philippians, to Philippians chapter 1. To Philippians chapter 1. We're continuing a theme that we began about three weeks ago here in Philippians 1. We're learning a valuable lesson from the Apostle Paul about life, in particular, even about ministry. And the lessons we're really learning are, is this, is that Christ matters more than anything else. Christ matters more than my circumstances. Christ matters more than my comforts. And as we're going to find this morning, as we will look primarily at verses 15 through 18, that Christ matters more than me. Christ matters more than you. Christ matters more than us as a church. And by that, I mean Christ matters more than even me being a pastor. Christ matters more than any person in their position in the church. Christ matters more than any ministry, any ministry endeavor. Christ matters more than any church. He matters more. We'll see that as we look at these verses together. But to begin our time, look with me beginning in verse 12 where he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. What Paul says there at the end is really the thrust of his message to the church at Philippi to let them know that he is rejoicing. And as we talked about a few weeks ago when we looked at verses 12 through 14, we saw that Paul is saying to them that no matter his circumstances, and remember what his circumstances were, he's in a prison. He's been there for a few years. He's really in there unjustly. And yet Paul is wanting them to know that his circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So if the gospel was moving forward, then Paul could rejoice. It didn't matter his circumstances. It didn't matter his comforts. What mattered was Christ. And that's also what he's bringing to our attention here today. As we look at verses 15 through 18, where we find out this morning that on top of being in prison and being there for a few years at this point, he's in Rome, he's waiting to hear the verdict from his case, and the verdict's either going to be, Paul, we're going to spare your life and you're going to be free and let go, or we're going to put you to death. While he's sitting in prison waiting for this verdict... Paul was also having to deal with 
an internal problem in the body of Christ there at Rome. And it was directed at him. Paul was having to deal with pastors who saw themselves as his rival. They saw Paul as a rival to themselves. And sadly, as we'll look at it here in a moment, they were in the ministry. Some of these men were in the ministry for the wrong reasons. They were in the ministry for recognition. Thus, when Paul comes into town, and when Paul is, these things are happening through the life and the ministry of Paul, and he's gathering this recognition from others, they don't like what's taking place. In fact, if you go back and you read through those verses 15 through 18, you notice that there were two groups of preachers. There were two groups of preachers here that are coming out of, and I notice now that verse 15 is coming obviously on the heels of verse 14 where he talked about that there are some of the brethren. So he's not talking here about false teachers. He's talking about some genuine born-again believers, some folks that were there in Rome that had trusted in the Lord and they had more courage now to speak the word of God without fear. But as some were stepping forward, now with less fear to speak the word of God, they divided up into two groups. The one group, you notice there in verse 15, were those who were doing it from goodwill doing it from a right heart, a right motivation. He goes on to say in verse 16, they were doing it out of love. They knew that though Paul was in prison, he was there appointed to defend the gospel. They understood why Paul was there. They weren't going around spreading rumors about Paul. They weren't using the fact that Paul was in prison against him. They were out defending, saying, no, Paul is there. He's been appointed by God to be the one to defend the gospel. They were doing it out of sincerity and in truth, as it says in verse 18. They saw, team, they saw themselves on the same team as Paul. But not the other group. He says in verse 15 that some, to be sure, are preaching Christ. Notice he says, from envy and strife. And he goes on to say about them in verse 17 that they are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. And notice what they're doing. They're doing this intentionally, thinking in verse 17, as he says, they think that they're causing Paul distress, even more distress than he was under while he was in prison. Notice the difference of verse 16 and 17. Verse 16, those that were with Paul and a part of the team of Paul, they know they know what they are doing and what they're thinking about Paul is right. They know he was appointed for the defense of the gospel. When it came to verse 17, for those who saw him as a rival, they thought that what they were doing was going to cause them to, him distress, but it didn't. Well, how is it that Paul was not under more distress knowing that there were some folks out there in the community, in the body of Christ, true born-again believers that were trying to do, them, do things to him to cause him problem, to cause him more stress, to cause him more distress in his life and in his ministry and what he was facing while he's sitting there. Again, remember, this is a man who is possibly sitting on death row. 
He's sitting on death row. And those that are out there getting to enjoy their freedom to proclaim the gospel are doing things in the way they're preaching the gospel. Or really the, the reason why they're preaching the gospel is to cause him distress. And you find out when you look carefully at it that what the issue was in verse 15, when you see there was envy and strife, is that is they saw him as a rival. That idea of envy and of strife. Understand, they, they saw Paul as a rival. Because if you notice in verse 17, he says they were doing this out of selfish ambition, that sadly there were some that were there in the ministry for the wrong motives, for the wrong reasons, for their own recognition, maybe to climb the ministerial ladder. And they saw Paul as a threat to that. Because if you think about it, go back to verse 14 for a moment. Because notice what he says. Paul says, because he's hearing this, okay? Remember, Paul, though he's in prison, could have interaction with people from the outside. They could come into Paul and to hear Paul and talk with Paul and have a conversation and communication with Paul. So Paul is hearing about what's going on and he's hearing that there are people now outside that still have their freedom that are trusting in the Lord. And notice, because of my imprisonment. I mean, they were giving credit to Paul in the sense Paul knew that because of his imprisonment, because of the way he was handling things, because of the way he was standing firm in the gospel and he wasn't compromising and he was still proclaiming the gospel and they were hearing that that Paul was sharing the gospel in prison and guards were getting saved and people throughout the household of Caesar were getting saved and they were getting more bold in this and they knew that people were were being... uh, drawn to Paul, to to what he was doing and what he was saying, though he was a man in prison. They became envious of this. And they were preaching Christ from this envy and from strife, that is, seeing him as a competitor. They were there competing with Paul. Doing it for their own selfish ambition. Beloved, I wish, I wish I could stand here today and say that that never happens today, but it does. Where sometimes men are in the ministry for the recognition. They're in it to climb that ministerial ladder as a career. And they see other pastors, they see other preachers as competitors, as rivals. But beloved, that's not just in the, the pastorate. That can be even amongst congregations as well. That they see other congregations as rivals, as competitors. Instead of understanding that we're all ultimately on the same team. We're all about the cause of Christ. And this is coming back to my main point of what I'm trying to get across to you, of what Paul was trying to get across to the church at Philippi, where he's saying, look, Christ matters more. He's saying, it's not about me. It's not even about my ministry. It's about Christ. It's about Jesus Christ. We all need to have the same attitude that John the Baptist had. This is the attitude that Paul had here. Go back with me for just a moment to the Gospel of John. Go to John chapter 3. Go to John chapter 3. In John 3... We find out in verse 22 that Jesus and his disciples, 
They came into the land of Judea and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Now John is in the area as well and he's baptizing because there's a lot of water there for them to use to, to bring about the baptisms. If you look over in chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So they're in the same area, and more and more people are drifting away from John the Baptist, and they're moving more and more to Jesus. Although it says Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Now, understanding this is what's taking place, you go back to verse 25, and he says, Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see what John, John understood. His time had come and it was going. But Christ mattered more. He wanted his disciples to understand Christ mattered more than him. Christ mattered more than them. Christ mattered more than their ministry and what they were doing. Jesus mattered more. The cause of Christ mattered more. So beloved, as a pastor, I am not to be envious of other pastors. As a church, we are not to be envious of other churches. We are not to be in this, and I am not to be in this for the recognition that we may garner. We are to be in this for the cause of Christ. And as even John says here, when he says, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. And so we just trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. But now notice something, if you will. Go back with me to Philippians chapter 1. So, again, what was Paul's response to what these men were doing? To what was taking place? Paul's response was to rejoice. He rejoiced. Though they're trying to cause him stress, he's rejoicing. How can this be? How can this be? Well, ultimately, beloved, it says, as I've been saying to you, it's because Christ mattered more to Paul than Paul. Paul wasn't worried about his reputation. He wasn't worried about his ministry. He wasn't worried about him being a pastor. That that wasn't the issue for Paul. Paul understood Christ mattered more. And here is why it was that Paul on this occasion could still rejoice. 
Because as he says there in verse 18, what then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. That was the ultimate issue for Paul. That was the ultimate issue for Paul and why he could still rejoice because the gospel was progressing because Christ was being proclaimed. These men may have been doing it for a wrong motive. And Paul is not excusing their wrong motives. He's not saying that that's not sin. It is sin. Those men would be held accountable before God for their motives of what they were doing, just as each of us will as well. God will not only judge our words and our deeds, He will judge our motives as to why it is we do what we do. But Paul understood this, that if Christ was being proclaimed, If he was being proclaimed, he knew there was power in the gospel. You see, the power is not in the, the messengers. The power is in the message. And he knew the Spirit of God would take that message if that message was being proclaimed and what they were saying was right and the way they were saying it was right. Paul knew that the gospel was the power of God unto salvation. Thus, if they were proclaiming Christ and they were doing it and the content was right and their communication was right, Paul could still rejoice in that fact. So let's think about that though. You look at verse 18. He could rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. Now beloved, there is way more in that statement than you may think. Because when you look at the ministry of Paul, when you look at his ministry, when he says that Christ is proclaimed, And he's being proclaimed in such a way that he could rejoice in what they were doing. It tells you, beloved, that Paul understood that these men were not compromising the message. They weren't compromising the method. They weren't compromising the means. They were trusting in God, trusting in His Word, trusting in His Spirit, the Spirit of God. Because you see, beloved, When Paul says Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice, he understood that that meant the content of the gospel was sound. The communication of the gospel was sound. That is, the doctrinal message that was being preached by these men, it was sound. The delivery method was sound. Think about it like this. Here's how you can understand when Paul can rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. Let's just look at where Paul reveals to us at times when he would get concerns in regards to preaching and preaching of the gospel. He got concerned about the doctrinal message of the gospel being preached. And again, we know now because he's rejoicing that he is not concerned about what these men are doing in the sense of what they're saying. We even know that because if you go over to chapter 3 in Philippians, Paul's going to bring up some false teachers and there in verse 2 where he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. And even later on in chapter 3, 
He speaks about those who, in verse 18, who walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. These men were not of the category that Paul is speaking about there. And again, we can look at Paul's response to see that when he says Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice that, that they were not compromising in any way the doctrinal message and the content of the message of the gospel that they were preaching. And the reason why we can know that because look over for a moment in Galatians chapter 1. Go to Galatians chapter 1. Paul is concerned here. Notice what he says in verse 6. Now compare it and contrast it, if you will, to how he's rejoicing over Philippians chapter 1. In verse 6 of Galatians 1, he says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So clearly, when you see what he's saying here to the church at Galatia, that this is not what was happening there with the church at Philippi that he's talking to. That those brothers that were out there, they were not preaching another gospel. They were not distorting the gospel of Christ. That is, they were not saying it is Jesus Christ plus circumcision plus something else. They weren't doing that. The content of their message, the content of their gospel was something that Paul could rejoice in. Look over in chapter 2 of Galatians. If you want to know if Paul would have been willing to say something at that time to those believers there in Rome that were doing those things, absolutely he would have because in verse 11 we find out, but when Cephas, that is talking about Peter, came to Antioch and I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. Now why is that? Why is it that Paul felt the necessity to go and confront Peter to his face and say that this man stood condemned about what he was doing? Verse 12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Notice what he says in verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, that's when he spoke up. You see what he's saying? Paul understood that they were now doing things that was distorting the content of the gospel. It was giving the impression, it was giving the impression that it wasn't by this gracious faith alone in Christ alone. And when they started doing things that was undermining the content of the gospel, Paul said, I said something to him. I confronted him about that. Paul understood the content of the gospel was critical. 
Look for a minute, if you will, over in 2 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians 11, the opening verse, he says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches, and notice what they're preaching, they're preaching another Jesus, whom we have not preached. Or you receive a different spirit that is a different teaching which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted. You're bearing this beautifully. And notice what he says down in verse 12. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off. I want to cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. Because he says they're false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So notice, on these occasions, Paul is saying, I was going to cut these men off. Cut them off from what they were saying, from what they were doing. Why? Because they were preaching another Jesus. They were preaching another gospel. They were not being true to the content of the gospel. Thus, Paul couldn't just rejoice. He was not rejoicing in those occasions. So the church that Philippi, he's writing to, and he's speaking about these believers in Rome, that though they were doing it for wrong motives, the content of their gospel was clear and right. But notice something else. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for a moment. And notice, Paul wasn't just concerned with the content of the gospel, he's concerned with the communication of that gospel. In verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 2, he says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined... To know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Notice what Paul is saying here. He was saying he was not only concerned, that the, the content of the gospel be right. Thus he was determined to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. But notice he was also concerned as he came there to the city of Corinth and he was there proclaiming the gospel to them, starting in the synagogues and spreading out beyond that. As he was doing that, he was just as concerned that as he proclaimed that message 
as he proclaimed the Jesus Christ and him crucified, that he did it in such a way so as not to compromise the gospel message itself and even to make it void. As he says over in chapter 1, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, but not in the cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul understood these two realities were inseparable. You can't separate the content of the gospel from the communication of the gospel. He understood they went together because someone can even have the content, but if they're communicating it in a way that's not depending on the Spirit of God and delivering the Word of God, he knows that can just as much make the power of the gospel void in those situations. And notice now in verse 2, understand the context of what Paul is saying here. Paul says in verse 2, I determined. He had to make a determination because, understand, this was not the norm in his day. The way Paul came and delivered the message. The communicating of the gospel that Paul delivered, the way he stuck to the scriptures and he persuaded and reasoned according to the scriptures and the way he stayed true to the word of God and the way he delivered that message, that was not the norm of his day of communicating, of persuading. Paul would not move into those areas that were popular in his day, the techniques that were popular in his day. That's why, let me show you something real quickly. Think about what he says there. He says, look, I came to you and said, look, I'm not going to be clever. I'm not going to depend on the, the um, persuasive words of the wisdom of men. That is, I'm not going to use the, the, the rhetoric and the oratory skills that were taught of that day. I'm not coming there to use the, the techniques and the manipulation, the way things could be done even that day. He says, look, I'm not coming there to do that. I'm just coming there to come and explain to you, exposit to you the word of God, explain to you about Jesus Christ and Christ crucified, his death, his burial, his resurrection and the implications of all of that not only for salvation but for your life and then I'm going to let the word of God do it in the demonstration of the spirit and power now notice because that's the way Paul chose to do it go over to 2 Corinthians for just a moment go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 10 where Paul is describing himself because he's having to defend himself a little bit here And here's what some of the people were saying. Verse 10. For they say, it's talking about Paul, his letters are weighty, they're strong. But his personal presence, that's just unimpressive. His speech is contemptible. What's he saying here? He's saying that, look, Yes, they could rightly maybe accuse Paul and say, look, Paul, when, we, when you were here in the flesh before us, there was nothing physically about you that was impressive. And not only that, you weren't a very charismatic guy. Your persona wasn't something that drew people to you. I mean, you were here and there was just nothing. There was really nothing about you. Absolutely nothing. And not only that, your speech was contemptible. That is, it was so simple and so straightforward It just seemed kind of dull, kind of boring to us. In fact, they go on to say over in chapter 11, look over in chapter 11 for a minute, 2 Corinthians. 
where it says, verse 6, but even if I'm unskilled in speech. Do you see when Paul is drawing all this, and this ties back to what was his approach in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, look, when I came, I just came with a simple message. Christ crucified. Now that doesn't mean he just got up every day and all he ever said, preached was the gospel. He would preach the whole counsel of the word of God. We know that from other occasions where Paul talked about being with people and how he said, I I taught you the whole purpose of God. I taught you the whole counsel of God in my time that I was there. But Paul, you go back and read in the book of Acts, you see what was his approach. He just would come to them and reason with them from the scripture, persuade them from the scriptures. He was just pointing to the scriptures. He didn't use the, the techniques even of their day. And he just trusted that God was going to work and it was going to be a work that was taking place in their heart between that person and God. And because that's the way he did it, some said, this man is, he's just not impressive to us. His speech is contemptible to us. In fact, he's even unskilled in his speech. Paul was concerned about that. And beloved, may I say to you that even for us today, this is something that we have to be careful about as well. Of moving outside the boundaries of Scripture. Moving outside the boundaries of what God has given us. Along this passage here, 1 Corinthians 2. Pastor John MacArthur, in speaking about this, says this. Listen very carefully to this. He says, Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 didn't use techniques that excite and stir and move people's emotions to achieve results. He preached the scriptures, and listen carefully to this, to the mind. Many preachers today know how to move people to respond without the scriptures being the issue. Preachers who are gifted communicators and who are articulate and who use the emotional techniques and the sad stories and the tear-jerking approaches and who get the mood music playing behind the scene and can create this environment that can affect in people behavior changes and even alter their basic values and never really need to use the Word of God. But what's the ultimate result? Is it true regeneration? Of course not. The only legitimate tool is the scripture. The only legitimate bridge to change, listen to this, is the mind. He goes on saying, I'm not saying that people aren't being converted in such situations, but I am saying that people who aren't being converted get swept up in it. And the people who are converted are converted because they comprehend the truth and because the Spirit of God affects the transformation. I think it is the preacher's responsibility to get attention and comprehension. It is the Holy Spirit's responsibility to produce yielding, retention, and action. That's not my job. All the slick techniques, all the gospel marketing packages, all the pulpit histrionics, and doing whatever they do to create the mood, all the sad stories, all the mood music, endless invitations, hand raising, walking to the front, all that kind of pressure is not preaching the word. It has nothing to do with comprehension. The decision of yielding, surrendering, then retaining and acting is between the hearer and God. Not the hearer and the preacher. It's the Holy Spirit's work. These two are inseparable. 
the content of the message and the communication of that message. Paul knew even in his day, it wasn't that Paul didn't have the oratory skills. He did. But he knew. He knew. He knew that he could move people, even move people to make professions of faith. But that faith, as he talks about in 1 Corinthians 2, he was concerned it would be based on his wisdom, his ability, and not on the demonstration of the power with the scriptures and the spirit of God. And he knew that if that happened, the deception would that would happen to those folks. But not only that, the detriment, it would happen to the church because it would sweep all those people who weren't saved up into the church. Beloved, we must always remember what the Bible teaches about faith. Faith comes to someone by hearing. That's the attention, the comprehension. By hearing the word of Christ. As the word of God, the word of Christ, the gospel, and the word of God is exposited and explained. God has chosen to do it this way, beloved, not depending on the techniques of the wisdom of men so that he gets the glory. God gets the glory. And this is even true for us even as believers in our walk with the Lord. As as we grow in our faith, we grow in our faith as we study the Word of God on our own or as we listen to it preached and taught and as it's explained and as we comprehend what it's saying, our faith grows in our understanding and from that the Spirit of God works in our heart and we're to respond to the Spirit of God, we're to respond in walking in obedience. This is what Paul understood. And so when you look back at that, and you look back at Philippians chapter 1, clearly, look, Paul, those men may have had a different understanding about eschatology. They may have had a different understanding about church government. They may have a different understanding even about baptism. But they were all in agreement on the message and the method and the means. And Paul was rejoicing. Again, not excusing their wrong motives. They were wrong in their motives. But God can still, the cause of Christ can still go forward even when a man or a woman is sharing the gospel out of a wrong motive. We know that from the the best example of that is in the Old Testament with the prophet Jonah. God used the prophet Jonah to bring basically the entire city of Nineveh to true repentance and salvation. And guess what? Jonah hated the Ninevites. He was so furious when God actually saved him. In fact, remember Jonah, that's why Jonah ran. God said to Jonah, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I'm getting out of town and I'm going another direction. And God had to go and basically having thrown in the water and water and have a, a, a fish come and swallow him and spit him up on the, the bank so that he would go to where he was supposed to go. But even after all of that, if you remember, once the city converts and the city repents, Jonah is over there pouting, having a temper tantrum with God, saying, that's why I didn't want to come over here. I didn't want to come over here and tell these people uh, your word because I knew who you were. I knew you were a compassionate God and I knew you were going to convert them. And I didn't want him converted. And yet God used this man, Jonah, with that kind of attitude, that kind of motivation to still bring about the salvation. Now again, that doesn't excuse us. Don't don't misunderstand. As I say, God's going to hold me accountable for my motives. 
He's going to hold me accountable for my motives for how I preach and proclaim the gospel. He's going to hold you accountable for your motives of why you do what you do. But ultimately, beloved, if we are being faithful in proclaiming Christ in that communication, in the content of that gospel, beloved, God can use that and will use that for the progressing of the kingdom of God. The message was clear. The method was clear. And so Paul rejoiced. He rejoiced. He rejoiced because, as I said, Christ mattered more than him. Christ mattered more than his ministry. Christ mattered more than his reputation. Paul didn't care. He didn't care if his, his name slipped from the minds of all the believers in Rome. That's fine with him. As long as they had Christ. He just wanted them to have Christ. So let me ask you this morning. Do you struggle sometimes with a spirit of envy? A spirit of jealousy towards other believers? Towards other churches? What means more to you? The cause of Christ? Or yourself? Myself? This is something we have to all ask ourselves. Well, then make sure we're in the same mindset as Paul. That we just rejoice. We can rejoice. But let me ask you this for some of you here this morning. The question is this. Does Christ even matter to you at all? Does he matter to you? You see, because when Christ matters to us, we'd be like the one who finds the treasure and we go and sell everything we have to hide it, to preserve it. He is the one that is so precious. He's more precious than, than all the gold, all the money, all the possessions of the world. Well, I pray Christ matters to you because he purchased for you the most expensive gift of all. He purchased for you the most valuable gift of all. Jesus purchased for you the most precious gift of all. That is the salvation of your soul, the salvation of your life to be able to spend eternity with Christ. Jesus did this. So, beloved, Jesus should matter to you more than anyone or anything else in this world. And I'm asking you even today, do you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Have you come to that place in your life where God has so worked in your heart that, yes, you can cry out even as you sit here today. You can say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus matters to me. He matters to me. Or as we're going to learn just a few verses down as we get here into Philippians chapter 1, can we say as Paul says, for me to live is Christ. That is to say, Christ matters most to me. Have you put your faith in Christ because he matters more to you than anything else in this world? Oh, beloved, I pray you will do that. I pray you'll do that this day, this moment. I want to ask you to bow your heads in prayer.